Thank you, Janelle. Good job. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, uh, I was reading the other day uh, about a guy who uh, was born in Canada and he had been adopted. And uh, he grew up, got married, started a family of his own, and, and uh, moved to New York City. And, and, and as he was there, and, you know, as, as these stories often go, as he was maturing and getting older, he suddenly realized he wanted to know more about his birth family. So he researched and he found the adoption agency that had handled his case. And he asked for, asked for any information that they might have about his, his birth family. And they got back with him and let him know that his birth mother had passed away and there was no record of his father. So he asked about siblings. And uh, they said they'd research it. And when they got back to him, they said, yes, you have a brother. And they told him his name. And they waited for a minute. And they said, does that name sound familiar to you? And he said, no, it doesn't. So they gave him the address of where the brother lived. And the address turned out to be almost directly across the street from his house. Both had left Canada, both had settled in New York, both had settled in that small neighborhood, and both had settled on that exact same street, and neither one of them even knew that the other existed. So it's an amazing story. You know, you think the, the title of the thing was A Small World, and it is. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to see happen, but it's also heartwarming. There's something wonderful about discovering family, uh, you know, that, that connection that's there that we long for. And then when it's discovered and, and realized, there's something beautiful about that. There's something that, that stirs our, our hearts. I think it's important for the church to regain our sense of family, the, the sense of family that God intended. And that's something we're going to talk about today as we continue our study in Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along, maybe take your own notes, go to Luke chapter 8, please. Last week we finished up chapter 7. We read about a woman who had crashed a dinner party at a Pharisee's house named Simon and how she had uh, washed Jesus' feet with her tears and uh, we considered the distinction between this woman's gratitude to Jesus and Simon's obvious sense of superiority over them both. Simon felt secure and not in need of forgiveness because, well, he had been born into the right family. He was Jewish and automatically part of the covenant people, and he did his best to keep the law of Moses. And as far as he was concerned, that was all there was. That was enough. And interestingly, this idea of what it means to be part of the covenant family becomes a sub-theme in the text that we're going to be reading today. Family in the ancient Near East, you know, who your family was, was really important. It determined your place in society. It meant the difference between acceptance by God and not based on their understanding of this covenant relationship with God. So Jesus showed up and challenged these concepts that had become normalized in people's minds. Jesus is going to reveal that, yes, it is God's intent to form a family uh, around him, but he challenges the accepted assumptions about who it is that makes up that family. And you'll see what I mean as we get into this. So if you are there in Luke chapter 8, we're going to begin with verse 1. We're going to read the first four verses 
Uh, but our main focus is going to be on the verses after that. But the first four kind of set up thematically something that's going on here. So it says there soon afterwards, and it's talking about soon after the events of chapter 7 uh, as Jesus had gone to that dinner party. Soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the people were selling t-shirts, you know, the famous tour, tour of the nearby towns and villages preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. You want to know what the gospel is? You want to know what the good news is it's about the kingdom of god god fulfilling his promises that he made he took his 12 disciples with him along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases among them were mary magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons joanna the wife of kuza herod's business manager and susanna and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support jesus and his disciples We'll stop there for a minute. Here we get a snapshot of the crew who's traveling with and ministering with Jesus. The, the 12 disciples that we already know about, we, we usually have them in mind when we think of this or picture this. But notably, Luke identifies by name three other women that were involved in this. That's a highly unusual thing, not unheard of, but an unusual thing to, to have occur in an ancient document like this. So I don't know if you've seen this crowdsourced TV series uh, called The Chosen. Anybody seen that yet? How many here? Not many. I want to tell you, I really want to encourage you to watch that. It's, you can find it, uh, you just if you do a Google search, you'll find a way to, to watch it. Um, I just really recommend it. And, and if you know me at all, you know that I really cannot stand movies about Jesus. I mean, by and large, it is very rare. There was like one animated one that I liked, a puppet animation. But other than that, everything else is awful. I mean, just, you know, a British, blue-eyed, sullen-faced, unhappy little man of a Jesus is usually what's portrayed in, in those things. But this, this, is a, this is a series, and they actually do a really good job listening to the testimony of the guy that's behind it. It's, it's pretty impressive. And so this one stands out as unusual. And I guess what I wanted to point out is that it's handled, you know, he handles the idea of Jesus' followers to include the women that Luke identifies here. So you've got a better rounded picture of what that w- was like. We know then that Jesus' followers cut across the the social status and gender uh, of that time. Anyone can join in. Uh, not everyone will, but anyone can. Is the worst Sean? Are you around here, Sean? He was wearing a cool T-shirt. He might be somewhere else right now. But it's just I'm, it says, I'm a whosoever. It's John 3.16. You know, whosoever believes. Anyone can join in. It's just, you know, not everyone will. This wasn't just a guy's club hiking across the wilderness, trying to set things right. This was a new form of community. This was a new family emerging on the scene. And we'll get back to this thought. The section that we're reading begins and ends with the idea of a new kind of community, the family of God. And in between, then, Jesus tells a parable to kind of explain how this family forms and and how one gains entrance into this family. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. One day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him. A farmer went out to plant his seed, and as he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns and grew up with, and grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. 
Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as he had planted. And when he said this, he called out, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. His disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he replied, You are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. So Jesus, and really like most rabbis of his day, Jesus taught by telling stories, telling parables. Parables are wonderful because they require our participation. There's no static just listening to a parable, especially, you know, the way Jesus was doing it. The answers are not spelled out. Uh, most of Jesus's parables, today's is going to be, is going to be uh, different from that. Is that just in my head or is that happening here? Uh, Okay, either way, uh, Jesus rarely ever um, tells us what the parable means. He just, you know, he just puts it out there so that we have to start uh, asking the question, why? And that is how we participate in the story. When the story is told, our minds start to engage in asking these questions. I could imagine that the practiced farmers uh, listening to Jesus' story would ask a lot of whys as he's telling this uh, particular one. Why is the sower out of his mind and recklessly throwing seeds uh, around? Why is Jesus talking about seeds being thrown on a path? Everyone knows they're not going to grow there on that packed earth. Why is he describing this odd scenario? What does this mean? And as they ponder it, entering the story in their minds, it suddenly dawns on them, oh, this, this is about God. Oh, wait, no. This is about me he's talking about here. What it takes then is ears to hear, which is what Jesus says at the end of the story. The word hear in the Greek is akuo in the Greek. And it's a verb that means to hear something audibly, but it also carries an active sense of being attentive, really listening to what's being said. Used in the present tense, this is an ongoing act of paying attention and listening in order to put into practice what is heard. That's the concept behind it. Now this idea of listening, paying attention, and uh, in order to put it into practice, this is, a, this is a real problem if you've already got everything figured out. Uh, you know, I used to be somebody who knew everything. And then God healed me of that condition, and, and, and I got better. If we operate from the assumption that what we've already known is all there is, we may miss the point of the story because we'd be trying to force it into our established assumptions about life or God or whatever instead of just listening to what's being revealed. The disciples are perplexed by Jesus' storytelling, and so in answer, he quotes Isaiah where the prophet was speaking to Israel who had become so hard-hearted that when even when judgment was unfolding right under their noses, they couldn't recognize it. They couldn't see it for what it was. They just stubbornly continued on in the path that they were going. So a stubborn, uninformed arrogance was the heart of the problem. And Jesus applies this to the religious leaders who were presently rejecting Jesus at that time, indicating that they couldn't 
hear the message of the kingdom. It was hidden from them because of their unwillingness to consider anything outside of their already established expectations. We talked a lot about the expectations that people had for what Messiah was supposed to be and do. In contrast, the disciples who had no religious training or disposition were open and humble and willing to entertain the possibilities of God's unexpected ways in which he moves in this world and in our lives. We're witnessing a contrast then between those who assumed their place as covenant family with this new thing that Jesus is doing in forming this new kind of community and family. And I think we learn here that our entrance into God's family begins with teachable humility. An attitude that assumes all the answers are already accounted for and that God is not going to move outside of our prescribed plans is exactly what the Pharisees suffered from. We've been seeing this pattern build in the the Gospel of Luke, starting with the villagers in Nazareth when they heard Jesus quote from Isaiah uh, and, and identify himself as the one who was bringing this good news to pass. They rejected him. And, and, and it was like seed falling on stony ground. They rejected him to the point that they were ready to throw him off, off a cliff. The Pharisee at the table last week, as we were reading that, seemed to want to give Jesus a fair hearing. But he's so shocked by Jesus' acceptance of this woman who had a poor reputation that he can't imagine a prophet behaving like that. And so the birds come and just gobble up anything that was there. And he can't see it then. In contrast, we've seen the Roman centurion who humbles himself before the Lord and receives not only blessing but praise from Jesus. A tax collector leaves his corrupt business and joins Jesus' followers. The family that's building around Jesus emerges when they're humble enough to accept that he knows something that they don't. And that's really where it all begins. This journey of following Christ, of being the family of God requires humility. It requires that we hold our speculations with a loose grip, willing to encounter God's rule in new and unexpected ways around unexpected corners. A willingness to admit that I don't have it all figured out. I don't know everything and that there's a lot for God to unfold. Now, I can imagine that somebody might be sitting here thinking, but Rob, you know, are you saying that we can never be sure about what we believe? Are are you trying to, you know, say that we're supposed to live in this perpetual state of not knowing? No, I'm not saying that. Certainly, and I'll just make this as clear as I can. I believe there are objective, even absolute truths that are part of our faith. There are truths that connect us to historic Christianity. But I'm going to tell you for myself, there's about five hills maybe that I would die on. Uh, And even there, I wouldn't assume that I know all there is to know uh, about those truths. There are angles and offshoots to those truths where I have a lot of exploring to do still. And I'm convinced more and more that one lifetime is not enough, not enough time. But God draws a family around him that he can lead and teach and, like any good dad would do, lovingly surprise along the way. Okay, so then Jesus uncharacteristically explains this parable to his disciples. Verse 11. 
He says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while and they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. So he explains this with surprising clarity. I mean, he's really quite straightforward in this. There's not a whole lot of nuance or stuff to figure out. The seeds represent the message of the good news of God's rule breaking into this world. The good news of all the promises of God, the blessings that were promised to Abraham, God would bless the nations through this one family, is being fulfilled. The means of reconciliation with God, our creator God, is on the scene through Jesus. The sower then, in this case, would be Jesus, but then it would also be all those who come after him, who continue to share this good news about what God is doing, sharing it indiscriminately, sharing it all around, not doing sample soil tests or anything like that, just throwing seeds around with whatever, you know, with whoever we meet. The effectiveness of the word depends on the heart that receives it. So the different types of soil, Jesus said, represent different types of people who are either hard-hearted, like the religious leaders that we've seen so far, or people who are initially stoked, but then it's shallow, it's a, a shallow emotional response that doesn't really root them at all. It doesn't take hold or produce any sort of fruit. And then there are those who embrace this good news of God's rule, but, you know, life gets busy and there's a lot of other interests that they are pursuing and, 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 and it crowds out the urgency of God's kingdom and God's kingdom work from their lives so that it really doesn't have a place there anymore. And finally, there's the heart that embraces God's rule and is shaped by it and whose life is then fruitful. In other words, a fruitful life being a life that displays uh, on earth uh, what it is to be in heaven, uh, to to display God's values and purposes and priorities in this world. I think that's a fair representation of what Jesus was describing. But I'd also like to suggest that in my own personal experience and based on what I've heard from other people's testimonies, that all of these types of soil can be found at different times in one single heart. <laughs> that, that our hearts are complex enough that, you know, it's not always just a one-size-fits-all type of response. There's a lot of different areas of life and the heart that, that have to be submitted. And there are two repeated words here, hearing and heart. And the two are vitally connected. Hearing, remember, is that in that active sense. Listening is actually a characteristic of discipleship. We listen to what his word says. It's essential to discipleship. Listening, not just to hear, but with the internal response to obey or to submit to what's heard. To see that life is conforming to what it is that God intends. What God intended for our lives all along. We, I believe, learn that God's family is comprised of people whose lives are continually shaped by God's word. As I said, 
Here and heart are repeated words in this text. Jesus places an emphasis on listening and submission. We're, we're here this morning. This is what this is all about. This is why we're here and why we're doing this. We're, we're, we're listening. We're being attentive to God's word. We're stepping into the story to see the world and ourselves and, and God in new ways, in the ways that he intended for us to see him and understand him. God, God didn't call us to expand our religious knowledge or, or accumulate a set of static concepts about theology. He calls us into a story. He sets us on a path of discovery. And it's always, you know, it, it's always an adventure. It's, it's not always clear. And that's why we have to listen. We have to pay attention. It's so easy to get caught up in the way the world works and how everything seems to flow one way or another with the cultural forces that are around. And we have to pay attention. We have to listen. We have to listen to what it is that God has said and see how our lives are meant to be shaped around that. So when we come together like this and we work our way through these big chunks of God's story, of God's word, let's set out to be attentive to, I like imagining, and Eugene Peterson is the one who I, where I heard it, to present ourselves to this word and allow this word to shape us, to reshape how we live and respond and act and speak and all of that. Let's be open to things that are not obvious, that may occur as we're submitting to this text, the little trails in our own minds that, that may lead us somewhere as we hear this word, to see if God is showing us something somewhere on those little trails. This is about discovery. It's not about accumulation of facts. This is about discovery. And it's honestly really exciting. It's been so exciting for me my whole life of following him. It's, it's an amazing adventure to me. A good practice to have daily, or at least often anyway, is for God to, to till the soil of our hearts to enrich the soil so that we're responsive to, to what we hear, to pay attention to where the weeds and the birds might be wanting to crowd out the values and priorities of God in our lives. As I said, I think the different types of soil analogy can represent different areas in one person's heart all over the place. One person's response to God may be multiple and multifaceted in the way that we do that. So what are the areas that we struggle in to allow God to have his way? What are those areas in our hearts and our lives that we find very, very difficult to yield to God's purposes and our, our trust in God and his, his sovereignty over the events of life? What is it? It can be a lot of different things. Is it the coworker who's always rummaging through your stuff in the fridge at work? Is it the agitation that we feel after watching too much cable news? Is it lustful thoughts as we dehumanize and objectify our fellow persons? What are those things in our lives that want to crowd out God's values? Let's pray about those and ask God by his spirit to begin pulling up those weeds, to begin chasing off those birds, to fertilize the soil of our hearts so we can hear, so that we can then embody those values of God. God, come in and take my heart. Make me a fertile place where your goodness can be revealed in this world. We can ask God to, to make our, our hearts more responsive so that we can be shaped by his word. 
Okay, well, Jesus continues, verse 16. No one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. So pay attention to how you hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. So again, Jesus is contextually making a contrast here, uh, contrasting the place in God's family that the religious leadership had assumed that they had by merit of their birth with those who are part of God's family because they embrace that status by faith and submit and yield to Jesus and his leading and his word. Everything, he says, is going to come to light. Our lives, in other words, will eventually reveal where our loyalties have been placed. Or we could put it like this. We will show off God's family resemblance in how it is that we live our lives. I have four kids, uh, and each of them carries characteristics of both Robbie and I. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> this is just one of those things. My younger son, Bradley, uh, actually has my exact voice. It's almost indistinguishable. I can, I can fool my granddaughter into thinking it's her dad when she hear, hears it. But there was a time in high school, uh, when Bradley thought it was funny to answer the phone, and this was back in the day. Okay, there used to be a time when not everybody had a phone. We had a phone in a central location in the house. Had a little cord attached to it. Primitive technology. Either way, he thought it was, you know, one of those fun things to answer the phone and somebody would assume it was me because it sounded like my voice. And he would play right along with it and he would just be talking with them as though it were me. And it was hilarious. And I was so amused. Uh, but listen... Family, family resemblance shows up even when there isn't a biological connection. My, my friend Ron w- was adopted and he heard often all through his life that he looked just like his family. Just, he looked so much like his dad. I know other families that have a- adopted children in it and, and the characteristics are, are there because you pick up man- mannerisms and, and values within a family and that just comes through and the resemblance begins to show. And this is the same thing that God desires for us to pick up on all of what it means to be part of the family of God, showing off to the world what it can be like to be reconciled with God, to be loved and love as a result of it. Showing off the family resemblance of extending grace to the undeserving and providing help for those in need, for not being caught up in the affairs or the spirit of this age, but following after, hard after, the one who saved us. This is a, the kind of a family to be proud of. This is what God has called together. I'm proud to, to be a part of this. I'm grateful to be a part of this vast family of God. And finishing up, uh, we'll read verses 19 to 21. And Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, uh, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. Jesus replied, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. Finally, we see it. Family, family 
is what God intends here. You know, uh, family as a concept has suffered greatly within our society. And I'm speaking uniquely of 21st century American society, though it could be extended to Western European society. But, uh, you know, it sometimes feel like, feels like a, a true rarity to come across an intact family unit, which means that we end up losing touch with the power behind the truth of, of our family status with God. Family becomes almost disposable oftentimes in our thinking. And so we don't catch the enormity of what's being, being said here. You know, this vignette that, that I read here is one that appears in all three synoptic gospels, which means that this is something the writers thought was really important to include. I would say for myself, as a 21st century American reader of this, I'm perplexed by that. Why is this story such a big deal? I mean, yeah, it's sweet. That's nice. You just call everybody family and stuff. But what? why is this so important that it gets hammered away in all three Gospels? One reason may be shock value. N.T. Wright wrote, In a peasant society where familial relations provided one's basic identity, Jesus' words are shocking in the extreme. Jesus is announcing that he's going to treat his followers as his very own family. Not even a surrogate family, but all the closeness and mutual obligations, as well as the support that went along with family in a close-knit familial society. Here, all of the normal barriers that, that might separate people by clan or lineage get removed. Now, in Christ, all, all, who live by faith in Jesus, are united as family. And I, I think that's our final and pretty important point about the subject. And that is, you can't choose family. <laughs> you can't choose your family. Harper Lee might be the originator of that quote. Desmond Tutu expounded on it, saying, you don't choose your family. They are God's gift to you as you are to them. As Christ's followers we're called together as a family. As the church, we're not an institution. We're not an organization. We're not even a team. We're described as family and all of the implications that go along with that. I realize someone could look around this room and say, I don't want to be family with these people. <laughs> but I'm sorry, that's not how it works. <laughs> we don't get to choose that. But, but even if, you know, we went to, even if we looked around and said, yeah, I'm out of here, and we go to a different church community, we are extended family with that community as well. The sad news is you're not going to get rid of me uh, or, or each other. Certainly we have, as I said, mutual responsibilities and support that we give and we receive here as this particular community or family expression as Eastgate, but all who call on the name of Jesus are our extended family, all who call on his name. I think we would do well to recapture that mindset of family. Because I would say too often, it's been my experience that church operates more like a brand or, or a team. You know, this is my team. I don't have anything to do with that team except for comparison or competition or whatever. This is my brand and I want my market share and I want you away from it or whatever. But that is not at all what Jesus described or what God, I believe, ever intended for his church. So 
over the last year, uh, myself and Blake and Janelle, we've been meeting with other pastors from Bay County in two different groups. Uh, there's uh, once a month on Thursdays, we go to the New Day uh, organization that was started by uh, uh, Greg Nelson. You know, it's a it's a place to help those who are in need of a, an immediate assistance after either you know homeless crisisness or whatever crisisness is that a word? I don't think so, but it's a cool word, and I think we should use it from now on. So we meet with them and we pray. We just spend an hour. The pastors we get together and we pray for an hour. Uh, but we're also part of another group called Pastors United of Bay County. Uh, this was something that was called together by Jesse Nelson, who is the lead pastor of Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in town. And, and this was, he reached out in the wake of all of the riots and the boiling frustration over injustice and race last summer. And he wanted to see how we could be as leaders in the church proactive in this, to look for kingdom solutions for the troubles that society is facing because, you know, violent riots and property damage, that is not a kingdom solution. But reaching across boundaries with a heart willing to listen and a heart desiring to love, that is a kingdom solution. And I can tell you that over these, over these months, this has been a beautiful thing gathering with these other church leaders, learning from each other, hearing their stories, loving each other, praying to our mutual father together uh, in this. I've made some wonderful new friendships with leaders of various churches around here. And I truly believe that as the American church, we have lost a vital component of our witness to the world in that we are so segregated by race. It's a tragedy. And as I said, it's, it diminishes our witness in unthinkable ways. When we've call, been called by Jesus to be one family, to be one people. And listen, that doesn't mean that we're all going to you know, be exactly alike. You know, we're still going to commit to and gather with one church family that we invest our time and, and, and care into. We'll certainly have differences of approach to ministry and ministry philosophy and even doctrinal differences. All of that has been evident over the last year as we've been meeting together. But those differences do not define us. Family does. Family defines us. We are the family of God. God's multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural human family. That's who we're supposed to be as the church. A promise that was made to Abraham was that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. That was fulfilled by Jesus. All the nations of the earth coming together as one family under God. We've got a lot of barriers to knowing that as a reality. There's a lot to do, a lot to learn, but it's our calling to get past those things. It's our calling to take this on as an important priority for us as the church and by God's power and by God's guidance and through the Holy Spirit, we will do that. In a few weeks, we're going to take a break from our study in Luke. Uh, so specifically two weeks, not, not next week, but starting uh, a, 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 the Sunday after next. We're going to take a break from this study and many of the churches that are involved in the Pastors United uh, Bay County group are going to be teaching the same series on God's intention for a unified family of God. 
So we've got four weeks that we're going to be approaching this. And every church, well, I don't know if every church, but a lot of the churches are going to be participating in this. And I'm going to be sharing their information with you so that you can uh, access their teachings online to see their church services and to to listen, to to see how other pastors and churches would approach these issues and to listen to what it is they have to say. It's such a marvelous opportunity for us to learn and to grow, to put into practice exactly what we were talking about, that intentional humility of recognizing I have much to learn in this and, and I have a ways to go, but I'm willing to do it because I love my Lord and Savior Jesus and I love the family that he's creating and I want so much to be a part of that unifying of that. And so, what, so these four teachings that we're going to be doing, these four weeks, is all going to culminate with a unity service at Sheffield Park in Lynnhaven on June 13th, where all of our various churches are going to be coming together uh, to share our gifts and to be a witness to the world of what God can do when he begins healing a community, what God does when he addresses the problems of society. And I think that sounds really great. I, I'm, I'm very excited about it. So I hope that you'll be praying about it and praying for that and uh, be willing to participate in it. It's going to be, I believe, at 2 o'clock. We'll get all the information out there for you. But at 2 o'clock on June 13th, um, we're going to come together. Uh, I, they talked about me doing a painting, kind of like one of those things that we do here sometimes. That I, I'm not exactly sure how that goes, but you know how that fits. But we'll figure it out. Uh, so we're going to do it. Uh, I just really hope that we can be a part of this. We can do our part as Eastgate to, to join in on this grand, mysterious, exciting thing that is the family of God. Right on? Right. All right, very cool. Will you stand up with me, please? Father, we thank you for the good work that you're doing in our lives, in our world, in this community in particular. We thank you for the way that you, by your spirit, move in our lives and our hearts. But Father, we thank you for your word. And, and just today, Lord, as we've attended to it, as we've presented ourselves before your word, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to, to do that deep work in our lives so that we don't just hear things and have something interesting to talk about later on, which is fine, but Father, let it be more than that. Let it be more than that. Father, dig deep into our hearts. Begin to chip away at those fallow areas that have gotten hard over the years. Father, all those areas where the birds have flocked in and we haven't shooed them away, by your Spirit, Lord, encourage us and help us to do our part in this, to exercise the discipline of shooing those things away so that the soil can begin to produce what it is that you want it to produce, the fruit of the Spirit into this world to lead us into the kind of life you meant us to have. I pray that for every person here, Father. Do that deep work of the Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to the hearts that are here. Lead us into lives that rightly reflect who you are, that rightly reflect your kingdom into this broken world. I pray this for each person here, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.